Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Well, we're very excited about our guest speaker this morning. Uh, we, we have a, a, a person that is a member of our family here at New Covenant. He and his wife Angie are here every Sunday and serve in a variety of ways. He's very, very highly skilled and experienced in the world of counseling, Christian activity, also a lot of dealings with the military over a career that goes back uh, 40, 50 years, something like that. And today he's going to uh, talk to us about some of the difficult times that we've been going through. And uh, as he finishes the message after communion in the foyer, we will have some special resources available and some people to talk to. Also counselors available with pastors up front after the service if you need to talk about anything uh, for yourself or anybody that you're close to and love. So let's please welcome John Thurman. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Good morning, family. To give due homage to my boots. How y'all doing? Good. Let me have a sip here. Well, man, as a body, we have been through it the past couple of years, haven't we? Churches all around the country have experienced a lot of really interesting events uh, over the past two years, and our church particularly. Uh, I was talking to Dave and Steve earlier this week as we were preparing for the message and getting ready to share some hope with you today. And we've lost about 150 members during COVID that moved to other states. And then we had a number of people we lost just due to their going on to be with Jesus. And then most recently, Carly's tragic death and then the resignation of, of Dave uh, have had a huge impact on all of us. And a lot of people go, well, where do you go when you've been gut kicked like this? And today, I'm going to give you some things that we can do to kind of see where we are, absorb where we've been, and move forward. This list of accumulated losses has impacted every one of us one degree to another. And while we love Jesus and we have hope of heaven and the Holy Spirit's in us and things are great, we have to wrestle with the fact that a lot of this stuff has been difficult to deal with. It wasn't on our schedule, if you will. The good news is, is that God is there. He knew what was going on before it happened, why it was happening, and he knows what the outcome is. And today, I hopefully can give you some hopes and some dreams and some courage to be ready to transition to the future. But before I do that, I want to talk just a minute about suicide. I'm a mental health professional. Matter of fact, a week or two ago, a friend of mine that works on Focus on the Family said, I need you to write an article for us on helping parents help their kids deal with depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicide. And so when uh, we talked to Steve and Dave about this, they said, will you mention it? And I said, of course I will. Because this is a topic that no one really wants to talk about. And Steve did an excellent message on it a few months ago, back in February. So what I want to do is just address that first. And then I want us to look at some scriptures that can give us some hope, some encouragement, help us kind of gird up our loins and get ready to move forward. Many times people say, well, John, you know, you're a pastor, you're an ordained man, you're a former army chaplain. 
<clears throat> you're a mental health professional. What do you have to say about suicide? And I'll just say, you know, we, you and I never really know what causes a person to go to that dark space. But if you've known anyone that's committed suicide, you have often been left with a sense of impotence, powerlessness, guilt, maybe some shame and wondering, could we have done more? Quite honestly, here's one of the little secrets. Whenever I hear about someone who is suicided, is a lot of Christians whisper, well, do you go to hell if you commit suicide? No one ever wants to talk about that, so I figured I'd just throw that out there for a minute. <clears throat> My personal opinion is a, a believer, as a guy who's been to the seminary, gone through the ordaining process, as in the military, and worked with a number of cases like this, is that I believe when a person gets that desperate, they are not in their right mind, and that God's grace covers that. Having said that, even saying that, I realize something may think, oh, so it's okay for me to do it. You know, there are so many other options. Uh, God's grace covers a believing person who took such a desperate measure. But for me, I always wonder what could have been had that person been able to reach through that dark moment. I know that doesn't solve any questions, but it's something we see rising, both with young people and adults. And you know, many of you in this room, and I know myself, I've had fleeting thoughts when I've gone through rough times going, I wonder what it'd be like if I wasn't here. <clears throat> and you know what? Those of you that had those thoughts, you got through them because you're here today. So let me just say this. If you're in a dark spot and you're someone's in a dark spot, there is so much help available to you. Matter of fact, in the foyer today, uh, there's a handout. This is New Mexico crisis line. These people are great people. They've got a ton of resources if you're struggling or someone you know is struggling. So be sure, be sure to touch base with the folks up front. Also, at this service, Steve and I and several others will be hanging, hanging around here if you need to talk and need to visit. So don't give up hope. There's always hope. Find someone to talk to. And if you suspect someone's in a dark space, don't be nice. Ask them, are you doing okay? How are you doing? They'll probably say, I'm fine. And if you know that you're doing fine, ask them again. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, how are you really doing? And you know what they'll usually tell you? I'm not so fine. So, that's been a huge hit. Uh, we've <clears throat> had another family just recently was exposed to this tragic event. So, take that word, hear it, heed it, do what you can do to be aware of others. You know, we have done as a church such an extraordinary job the whole time we've been here of being able to... They even told me to do this. That was a bad choice. <clears throat> to help people, to show compassion, to extend grace and a helping hand. And not just by giving people a Bible verse, but with real practical, kinetic, tactical things to help people. Our leadership team has done a tremendous job providing God-honoring directions. And as we begin to move out of this season we've been in for the past couple of years, our most significant days lay ahead of us. And I believe that in my heart of hearts. And today I want to give you some hope from Scripture as we begin to transition to the future. I want to set the stage. To me, there are two characters in the Old Testament that really emulate resilience. One of those is King David, and the other is Ruth. 
But I want to set the story, set the stage for what I want to read to you today. We'll be in 2 Samuel 12, but I want to set the story. David was in a place he shouldn't have been. He was the king, and he saw Bathsheba. He lusted after her and said, you come here. He slept with her, not like she had a choice, guys. <clears throat> she sends him a letter going, we're pregnant. David calls Uriah, her husband, who's a leader in the Israeli infantry, and says, hey, man, come home. You're a good soldier. Sleep with your wife. Uriah, being a good soldier, says, sir, my men are sleeping in deprivation. They're sleeping in the field. They're eating field food. I will sleep with the horses. David had a problem. His alibi just went away. So David says, I have a message for the general. Dear general, put Uriah at the front line so he gets it, so he gets killed. Now, if you ever go to Amman, Jordan, there's a hill there called the Citadel. It overlooks Amman. Amman's a very hilly city. I was there a few years ago. And on that hill, that is the hill. There's a, an old Byzantine church there. There's a lot of faith-related stuff there. But that is the hill that Uriah died on. And the tour tells us, those of you who know the Old Testament, this is where Uriah was killed. And it kind of brought a you know, real-world reality to it. So this has happened. David's in a mess. People are starting to talk. And then Nathan shows up. And Nathan tells a story about this rich man who, who stole the sheep. And David, being a great smoke blower, said, who is this person? I'll take care of him. And folks, I, I visualize Nathan as like some creepy, strong, prophetic figure out of a Marvel comic. You know, kind of gaunt, kind of scary, long, bony fingers. And he reaches out his fingers towards David and says, Thou art the man. You're the man. And what happened? David, I mean, he doesn't have a whole lot of options. He repents. And he begins to restore his relationship with God. And that's where this story begins. Second <clears throat> Samuel, uh, Samuel 12, verses 15 through 23. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on bare ground. The elders of the household pleaded with him to get up and eat something, but he refused. Then, on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason why the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, he is dead. Now, this is where David didn't follow modern protocols. Some people in the grief industry think you have to go through these four or five phases to deal with grief. There's no research that really validates that. But there are phases we go through. But look what David did. Then David got up from the ground, washed, put on lotions, changed his clothes. And after that, he went to the tabernacle. And what did he do? He worshiped God. Then after that, he returned to the palace, and they served him food, and he ate. Wonderful response here. I love how the scripture just tells us everything. His advisors were amazed. It's kind of like, dude, we don't understand you. They wouldn't say, dude, sire, we don't understand you. 
you know, while the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now the child is dead, you stop your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back? I will go on to him one day, but he will not return to me. Now that is a wonderful little indicator that David believed in the afterlife. He believed in the hereafter. He believed that he would see that child again, that he experienced that child again. Let's, let's dig a little deep here because David really, from as, as early as we know about David, he is a model of resilience. You remember, some of you remember flannel graphs? Anybody remember that? For those of you that don't, it was a precursor to uh, PowerPoint and Keynote. You would take little plastic figures, get a charge on them, and stick them on flannel. Well, some of us remember flannel graph. If we could see David as a little boy, because they would peel it off, and then David with Goliath, and then King David. And when we look at his life, there's a lot of resilience in his life. If, if you look at him as a young man, if you look at him when he's a friend of Jonathan and Saul's got some mental illness going on, we think Saul probably had extreme unmedicated bipolar disorder. Looking back, he was on the run from Saul because Saul wanted to kill him. And then uh, you see David in and out of trouble a lot in Scripture, and he's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, David is not referred to as a man after God's heart until after the affair with Bathsheba. That's it. That'll get in your head a little bit. But if you look at it, he was an example of resilience. If you look at Ruth, which is a story I just love, this woman was faced with incredible odds, and yet she maintained her, integ her integrity. She was resilient, she was hope-filled, and she did the right thing, even when things didn't look good. And now she's one of the heroes of faith. And so I want to talk a little bit about resilience. So what is resilience? Uh, resilience is a capacity to deal with, to overcome, to learn from, and even be transformed by adversities, personal traumas, setbacks, and uh, negative experience in life. It's a, an ability to maintain relative stability and a healthy spiritual, psychological, and physical functioning levels. In other words, post-traumatic growth. One of the things that we talk about in my work is, and I do a lot of people have been through severe trauma. As a matter of fact, a little bit about me, in addition to being a therapist, I am a corporate crisis response specialist. And I responded over 250 uh, crisis events. Uh, I was involved with the uh, helping people after the Walmart shootings down in El Paso a few years ago. I've been involved in several mass shootings and a lot of earthquakes, um, fires, and uh, other critical in, uh, events and terrorist types of things. And what I've seen is that whether it's a hurricane, a mass shooting, some type of naturally occurring event, that most people get through it. Dr. George Bonanno did a study in Manhattan about six months after 9-11. And several people were going, oh, there'll be so many people have PTSD. It's going to be awful. It's going to be horrible. Well, he found out that at that point in time, 96% of the people living in Manhattan had post-traumatic stress. Not the disorder, but their brains were kind of reeling from what had occurred, the losses, 
the terrorism, the violation, all that stuff. Went back 10 years later and sampled the same group. And they found out only 8 to 14% of that population developed PTSD. Now, in our culture today, in the therapy culture, we hear PTSD being thrown around a lot. And yet, as a clinician who uses that, who's aware of the diagnostic criteria, when you start running out the full list of what PTSD is, a lot of people who don't have PTSD have PTS. So much for the psych lesson today. But in dealing with the aftermath of acts of terror, pandemics, natural disasters, communities, people groups, churches, organizations go through four phases. And uh, just take this for your own edification and your own knowledge. The first phase, like before the pandemic, it's coming. You better get ready. And we're like, it's scary, but man, we're here. Bring it on. Right? The second phase is the honeymoon phase, and it's like, we're going to get through this. I see this a lot when I respond to uh, natural disasters with FEMA. I'm a FEMA stress counselor. And uh, the first few weeks after the storm or the earthquake, they're like, we're together. You know, Puerto Rico strong. I was down there twice. Uh, Puerto Rico strong. We're going to do this. It's, we're going to do it. I've consulted churches that were going through schisms and splits, and it's, we're going to stick together no matter what. Or as we say in the South, we're going to stick together if it hair lips the booger man. <laughs> Steve, I had to let some of that slip out. It's my heritage. <laughs> but it's, the first phase is it's coming. We're going to be ready for it. The second phase is we're in this together. We can overcome everything. The third phase is a scary phase, and that's the disillusionment phase. In my work in disaster response, communities, they get angry at the system. Well, where's FEMA? Where are all these agencies going to help us? What about this? What about that? And in churches, lots of times, you'll see people kind of partition off into little subgroups. Well, we want this. Well, we want that. Well, we want this. And we want that. And uh, we kind of forget that it's about Jesus, not about our personal taste. You know, church is not a buffet or a buffet, depending on where you live. And that, that disillusionment phase, we, we tend to get angry at the system. We tend to start fragmenting, hang out with our people as opposed to your people, and uh, we circle the wagons. And we don't get stuck there. Part of transitioning to the future is this reconstruction phase, and I really believe that's where we are moving into. I really am excited about this. I really, truly am. And that is that people will emerge physically, spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically stronger. <clears throat> that's like... We've been through the ringer, man. We've, we've been pressed. We've been shaken. But we've been found worthy, not because of anything we've done, but because of Jesus in us. Jesus in us, the hope of glory. Jesus in us, who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus in us, who said, I will overcome the world. And because he has, we will. So, how do people typically respond to trauma, setbacks, adversity? There are three basic responses. And uh, I wasn't taking a ding at the grief industry, but what we have learned from years and years of research is there are three basic responses to when life throws you a curveball. You can see this in scripture, you can see it throughout history, and there, these three basic phases or places people end up is, first of all, is the victim. And uh, in some cases, in a clinical setting, this person may have prolonged grief. That's a new disorder that the uh, DSM has come up with. And 
And what happens to these people is they get stuck in grief. And by getting stuck in grief and never moving past it, and sometimes not really allowing the Lord to do the healing, they end up being a victim for life. And unfortunately, a lot of people who surrender to being a victim, a lot of people who are overcome by the, the weight and the load of the loss, spend a good portion of the rest of their life trying to, trying to drive while in park. So if you surrender to victimhood, whether it's a past trauma, a death, some type of adversity, <clears throat> what always happens when you embrace the victim label is you become imp impotent and you'll spend your life driving apart. And, and that's about 25% of people in the grief cycle. Once again, this is statistically. The second response is a survivor. Now in this particular picture with David, the story with David, he really comes across as, as a survivor. And it's interesting when we see police officers, law enforcement, and military people do heroic acts, we go, and you know, they are the guy, they're the gal, they did this thing. They didn't really show any fear. Well, I can tell you, I've had the privilege of sitting with five Medal of Honor winners through Mexico, and to hear their stories, they will tell you they were scared spitless. I said spitless. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and after they did what they did, they were like, oh my God, I could have been killed. But something higher in them called them out. But the second type of person is a survival. And, and I've had a friend of mine that he and his wife had married 50 years and she died. And he grieved for her lingering death for months. But a few months after she had passed, he was kind of re-engaging in life. And you know what? Some of the friends of ours at church are going, he's not grieving. I said, well, for you to tell him he has to grieve in the way you think he has to grieve, that's kind of hypocritical, isn't it? Isn't it kind of like, if you point one out, how many come back? <clears throat> and so you'll see some people were able to move through grief. And let me tell you something about grief that I learned from my mentor, uh, H. Norman Wright. Grief is completely, uniquely personal. Just like your thumbprint. You won't do grief like I'll do grief. And to, for me to tell you how you need to do grief is nothing but W-R-O-N-G wrong. The third group is where most of us will probably end up. Matter of fact, the data tells us about 47%. And that we will be, and I'm going to say this word twice. I, read, I went over this with Angie. She said, say it two or three times because it's going to lose you. So you got a victim or prolonged grief. We've got the survivor. And then we have the rest of us. The Sir Thriver. There's no such word, but Sir Thriver. And the Sir Thriver goes, man, I've taken this hit, this loss. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm feeling really wobbly. But I know if I sit down, that's not going to be good. Because if I sit down and get lazy, my muscles will atrophy. And it won't be a good outcome. So I'm going to move forward. And some days, you know, after an event, you're like, I'm the king of the world. We got this man. And then other days, you're like, I don't even want to get out of bed. But the survivor in their heart of hearts says, this event is not going to define me. Matter of fact, some of you might remember the Virginia Tech shootings a few years ago. Uh, I was involved in that from a distance. And when the president of the company that I'm contracted with spoke to them, 
One of the things he said, and if you're a social worker in the room, don't get mad at me, I'm just quoting. When they called up and said, what are we going to do about our students? And my, the company I worked for said, we are not going to let any social workers with stuffed animals on the campus. Because if we do that, we'll be showing victimhood and powerlessness. Instead, we're going to go hokey strong. We're going to take care of the wounded. We're going to grieve the loss. We're going to do everything we can to make sure everybody impacted gets the best help they can get and move forward. And in my years of disaster response and all these crazy things that I get to do, when that's the message, you give people hope. And isn't that the message Jesus gives up, gives us? I will never what? Leave you or? I knew you before you were formed in the womb. So what can we do? When I look at churches, and you know, and I, I'll get to guests preach every night, Ben, and it's been interesting over the past few years, particularly with COVID. Some churches couldn't adjust and they had to close shop. And I know as I drive around Albuquerque as a small business owner and see a lot of small businesses that didn't make it. And you know, churches are made up of people. The, the greatest thing about church is the people. The biggest hassle about the church is the people. Uh, because we're all people that love Jesus and we're being shaped and formed into his image. Some stay stuck in the past. And you know, in New if you drive, just look in the rearview mirror, you're going to have a wreck and hurt someone. Some try to keep their nose above the waterline. It's like, well, we've got to do what we've got to do. Other churches go, <clears throat> this has been a tough season. This season will absolutely not define us. We've, been, we've taken some hits. We've had some serious losses. But we've, we're good people. We love the Lord. We care for people. We are extended in our community already through all these different outreaches we do. So here's how we transition to the future. This is how we make this happen. First of all, we reconnect. We reconnect with the Lord. If there's some things we need to get off of our chest and get right with him, today is a great day to do that. Second thing we need, we need to do is encourage one another. Now, some of you know my wife had back surgery last week. She has been in chronic pain for months and months. And uh, she had the surgery. She's doing well. But I just want to tell you, we've had several ladies from the church come over and just sit with her and encourage her and visit with her. And that has meant so much. And even before I walked down the stage today, uh, we prayed, for, you know, I appreciate the prayers that I had. But then one of the brothers grabbed, one of our elders grabbed me right before I came out and prayed for me. That's encouraging each other. And so reconnect, encourage, and then get back on mission. For so many months, because of COVID, we've all been sitting on the sidelines, you know, doing the Zoom thing. I'll tell you a funny Zoom story. About a month ago, I was put on contract with FEMA to go up and be a stress counselor at the FEMA regional headquarters in Bothell, Washington. Any of y'all know where Bothell is? <clears throat> Folks, the moisture up there just made my hair crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. People said, did you see the mountains? I said, no. I saw just clouds and fog and rain the whole time. I even had Mexican food there. It was awful. <laughs> and no green chili. Their chili verde was nothing like I'd ever seen. 
But part of why I was there is they were bringing back about 250 FEMA employees for the first time back in the building. And I'll tell you the neat thing about the FEMA headquarters in Region 10. It's an old Nike missile complex. So my office was one story underground. But the first day there, we said we have 120 new hires that have only been with each other on Zoom. We're bringing them in in two separate days. And, uh, and they said, we need you there. So I was there, and the therapy dog was there. Uh, and so th these people are coming in. It's so funny to watch them. They're everywhere from early 20s to mid-40s. And uh, do you all remember, you remember the seventh grade dance, the eighth grade dance? You know, seventh grade dance, if you're a guy, you're like, where's the food? <clears throat> I'm not dancing with one of them because they're girls. The only ones that danced together were the early bloomers. Eighth grade, usually that story had changed. Remember? The dancing was off. If it was fast dancing, it was kind of like, if it was slow dancing, it was what we used to call the Rick Rock. You just kind of drape and right? And if your guy, you smell perfume on a girl's neck for the first time, and you're like, what's that? And then all the guys, you know, at the first dance, like, okay, I'm good. But it was like eighth grade dance. They came in, and they're kind of like, but you could always see it in their eyes. You're not as tall as I thought you were. <laughs> and they got back in the groove of thing. But it, was, but it was really interesting to see. And, and people said, why'd they have you out there? I said, because we want to make that transition back to the workforce as easy as we can make it. So get back on mission. Discover your spiritual gifts. Find out a way to serve. When I deal with depressed clients, one of the things they hate me to, to, to say, any of you who've dealt with depression or are dealing with it, you know one of the most difficult things to do. I know when I was going through some PTSD issues from me working in the burn unit and some depression, uh, and I'm a therapist, I should know better. I didn't want to interact with anybody. I just want to kind of be in my room by myself. But what I'll tell my depressed clients is like, you need to go back to church. I don't want to go back to church. I said, well, you don't have to interact with anybody. Be like the deacons and go 10 minutes after the service has started. Now you don't do that here. And sit on the back row. And then when the pastor says, and finally, slip out. You haven't got to interact with anybody, but just get out there. But what we need to do is to begin to re-engage each other. And if you still need to wear a mask, great. If you don't, great. But reconnect. And then finally, get plugged in somewhere. Men's group, you know, I've started going to men's group. I didn't make the last session. But uh, find a place to plug in. Because that's where you build your friendships. One of the things that Angie and I have experienced since her surgery is we have had people from all over our life, my years in ministry and places we live, that have reached out to her and loved on her. And if you've never experienced that, it's really weird because you feel buoyed up by so many people's prayers. And even today as I was preparing this message, I knew because of some of the difficult things I wanted to talk about, I had a lot of people praying for me that I'd be able to deliver clearly and you'd be able to hear and receive what you need. So as I kind of wrap this thing up today, I want you to all stand with me for a minute. And if y'all could put up Romans 8.25 for me. It should pop up any minute. And if it doesn't, I'll just read it to you. Well... I will read it to you and you read responsibly, okay? I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love.
neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky or the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Remain standing for just a minute. As I close today, I want to remind you that God loves you and he even likes you. Because sometimes I don't like myself. You know, some days you look at me and go, boy, this is the best you can do, Lord. I'm not sure I want to sign up because I ain't handsome. I'm so ugly, I'm cute. <laughs> some of you can agree with me on that one. Although I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. But I want to remind you that God loves you and even likes you. His presence is always with you. And no matter where you are, if you're struggling in that dark hole of depression, reach out and get some help. We've got resources in the foyer or the foyer, depending on what part of the country you live in. And we'll have people standing front in a few minutes that are available to you. I'm going to ask Pastor Steve to come out and just kind of get us ready for communion. And as we move into communion, no matter what you've been struggling with, no matter where you are, I want to encourage you to embrace the presence of Christ to acknowledge his strength and realize that he who overcame the world lives in you. And as we as individual believers, as we as people of faith, as we as members of this community called New Covenant, stand here today. We are in a position to transition into a future filled with hope and promise where we'll continue to pierce the darkness and share the good news of Jesus in real meaning and practical ways. Let me have a prayer with you, then Steve will take over. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart root in me and in you. Thank you for your love for us and the hope and promise you give us in Jesus' name. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. So, until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May God smile on you and gift you. May God look you full in the face and make you prosper. Have a great week.